What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today marks 40 years since the end of a massacre that many believe put South Korea firmly on a path to democracy. The slaughter and unrest in the city of Gwangju was for decades an altogether taboo subject. And even today, it's a divisive one. And if all goes to plan, a crude rocket will take off today from American soil for the first time in nearly nine years. It's a point of pride for NASA, which had been relying on Russia for a lift, but also for SpaceX, the first private firm to put people in space. First up, though. Exactly where it started still isn't known. The first reported death from COVID-19 on American soil came on February 29th in Seattle, an early focus of the epidemic. 42 days later, the epicenter had become New York, which was reporting 10,000 cases and nearly 1,000 deaths every day. America had become the worst affected country in absolute terms. By the end of this week, it's expected that 100,000 will have died. In times of crisis, Americans usually look to their president, but Mr. Trump has been far from a unifying figure. President Trump has certainly given his critics lots of ammunition to criticize him. Idris Kaloun is our U.S. policy correspondent. Many of them believe that he bears responsibility for a significant fraction of America's now 100,000 or approaching 100,000 deaths due to coronavirus. We have it very much under control in this country. Uh, at the beginning, he was keen to downplay the severity of the threat. Every aspect of our society should be prepared. I don't think it's going to come to that, especially with the fact that uh, we're going down, not up. We're going very substantial. And to suggest that by closing borders with China and then by Europe, that America could somehow avoid the threat altogether. When you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. Uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. As that became clear what was not going to happen and that the virus was really propagating, he then started a campaign of sort of not taking responsibility for what was going on with the virus. So he said that it was up to the governors to make sure that they had the protective personal equipment that they needed, that they had the ventilators and all the rest. We're not a shipping clerk. Uh, the governors are supposed to be, as with testing, the governors are supposed to be doing it. And that the federal uh, government's back, job was to step back and let the governors do what they needed to made. do. But this is really for the local governments, governors and people. All in all, in terms of his presidentialism and his, his personal leadership, it's hard to find examples that, that look really good on, on his part. And, and to your mind, is that the whole story? Would, would, the, would the critics be right in, in going after him on all of these points? I think there are two different sorts of tests that you have to look at. One is of presidential leadership and of unifying the country. And I think on that count, it's pretty clear that he's not done a good job and I think has probably failed. 
on the second count of the policy decisions and what effects they had on things like the death rates, I think it becomes harder to attribute a large share of the deaths to Donald Trump's leadership. And I guess the the example that most people would look to would be what's going on in Europe, where you have a system of countries with less erratic leaders, with good universal health coverage and strong safety nets that were also hammered by the coronavirus. And indeed, the death rates in Europe uh, look a little bit worse as a whole than America. And in some countries like Italy and the UK and France and Belgium, the death rates from coronavirus look uh, worse than, than what happened in America. So in terms of the overall severity, America is a big country. 100,000 deaths is certainly a grim milestone. But in terms of the per capita rate, sometimes it, 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 looks, it looks similar between America and Europe. I think it just becomes a little bit more complicated there. How do you mean? In, in terms of the healthcare system, for example? Yeah, yeah. So no matter who was president, America would not have been able to avoid the virus. And it would have taken off, you know, in the global transportation hubs like New York, and it would have spread in dense urban spaces. And it would have interacted with a system of pandemic preparedness, which was already lacking, that people have been writing about for a long time. The fact that healthcare is expensive, that it doesn't cover everyone, that people might delay treatment. There were high levels of uh, pre-existing conditions like diabetes and, and hypertension uh, and obesity, all of which might have made the virus more lethal than in other places. So all of these disparities would have existed. America was not in the position that a country like South Korea or Taiwan was, where they had had a recent bad experience with SARS and they had put in place you know, a widespread countrywide testing infrastructure that was able to spin up very, very quickly. America would have always lost some time in trying to develop that. But a lot of the controversy also focuses on what happened very early days, uh, suggestions that, that policy decisions that could have been made far earlier on might have saved lives as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we know from a litany of research that earlier interventions are much more effective than later ones when you have sustained community transmission. And so initially, the Centers for Disease Control, which is America's health agency, decided that they would create their own test for coronavirus rather than using the World Health Organization's one. Um, Initially, that was botched and it was sent out to labs. It didn't work conclusively. And so that limited uh, America's capacity to really detect the virus as it was circulating. Now, some folks could say that that could have happened to any president um, and Trump is not to blame for that. And and maybe that's that's a fair point. Uh, It took several more weeks of entanglement with bureaucracy between the CDC and the FDA before testing really started to be opened up. And it really didn't hit the levels of 200,000, 300,000 per day until very recently in the midst of the lockdown when there was obviously quite a large amount of sustained community transmission. Now, you know, you also look at things like, um, you know, what time the White House recommended uh, social distancing to go into place. So as with any public health uh, crisis that would have been that that America would have faced, um, states have the executive authority and the feds generally provide the guidance and the money. So Trump could not have forced states to go into lockdown, but he could have recommended that they do so at an earlier time. And maybe some of them would have, and maybe that would have affected the course of the epidemic. So some researchers have tried to estimate, you know, what would have happened if America had gone into lockdown a week earlier, and they suggest that infections would have gone down by 60%, deaths by 55%. And I guess for people who are looking, and certainly this will be a feature, I think, of the coming election, is, is how culpable is Trump in the in the 100,000 dead and, and continuing because the virus has not gone away. I think people will look at those decisions and say, America had a couple of weeks before the virus came compared to Europe. It could have done better. It could have shut down quicker. 
And I think that that's, that's a difficult question to discern exactly, but I think it will also be a really important one in the future. And how is this playing out politically in this election year? Yeah, I think the main argument that Donald Trump had for his reelection is now bust. His idea was that he was going to say that he had been a good steward of the economy, that the unemployment rate was at record lows, the stock market was at record highs, and obviously he can't make that claim anymore. And so some of the zeal that I think you see from the president uh, wanting to reopen, and you see this from some state elected officials as well, who are Republicans, is that the virus has really disproportionately affected Democrats. And that's not surprising because the virus is, is something that thrives on density. And we've known for a long time that cities and, and rural areas are polarizing along the traditional partisan lines. So cities are blue, uh, rural areas are red. And so if you look at where the virus has been most prevalent, where it's killed the most people, you see that in counties that voted for Hillary Clinton, the death rates are something like triple the ones uh, of Republican counties. So it's, it's infecting fewer people, it's killing fewer people in, in Republican areas. But the one important point to keep in mind is that the economic shock is more widely distributed than the health shock. So the health shock is quite concentrated in cities. The economic one is more uh, spread out because lots of folks who are living even in, in kind of less dense areas are having to shelter in place. They're losing their jobs if they worked in a restaurant or a hotel. And so for those people, they could reasonably say, my risk of exposure to the disease is low. I know few people who have been infected. If you poll Republicans on whether they know people who have been infected, know people who have died, many fewer of them say that, that they have compared to Democrats. And so there is a real partisan division, both in terms of how Americans think about the virus and in terms of how it's affecting them personally as well. Idris, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. There will be more from Idris on COVID-19 in America on this week's episode of Checks and Balance, our sister podcast from Economist Radio. It's out every Friday. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Forty years ago today, troops took to the streets of the South Korean city of Gwangju to crush a student-led pro-democracy protest. For some, the event was a clear turning point on South Korea's path to democracy. But for others, including many of the country's political leaders, it was seen as a riot. For decades, talk of the event was taboo. The death toll is still unknown. But this year's commemoration events suggest that attitude is changing. In the spring of uh, 1980, South Korea was under martial law. The previous president had been assassinated the year before, and a bunch of generals under the leadership of Chun Doo-hwan had taken power in a coup. Lena Shipper is The Economist's sole bureau chief. On May 18th, in the city of Gwangju, which is in the southwest of South Korea, students started protesting against the martial law, against the curtailment of academic freedom, and the army cracked down really hard on those protests which led to the protests spreading. Laborers joined in, ordinary citizens joined in, and that led to 10 days of protests in Guangzhou that were eventually put down extremely violently by special forces. 
And are any of the survivors still around? Outside the cemetery in Guangzhou, where uh, some of the victims of the uprising are buried, I spoke to Pak Nam Soon, who um, was a leader of one of the civil militias who uh, organized resistance against the military at the time. And he said, you know, after the initial protest was put down so violently, the people really couldn't just stand there and do nothing. So he and some other people gathered together and commandeered vehicles and picked up arms. They, they essentially raided the armory of the local military. And he he was very explicit that, you know, even though they, they did take up arms and it got very rowdy, it was the reason that South Korea today is a democracy and people can live freely and say what they like. But that view of it being foundational to democracy in South Korea, that's that's not universally shared. So in the 1980s, the military dictatorship put out an official version of this uprising, which essentially claimed that it had been stoked by North Korean agents and the people involved in it were rioting communists. So talking about it or questioning that version in the 80s was extremely dangerous. It could get you arrested, put in prison, tortured. And that legacy stayed on even after South Korea democratized. So people in the more of the right wing of South Korean politics continued to downplay it as a riot. Those theories about North Korea stoking it also held sway for a very long time, even though there's no evidence that's ever been found for that. The army didn't apologize for its role in killing civilians until 2018. And so how are the Korean people marking the anniversary? When I was in Gwangju for the memorial service this year, I talked to quite a lot of older people who remember what it was like being there. So um, one older lady I talked to said she'd um, she'd had her first son that year of the uprising, and she remembers putting bed sheets on her windows to stop bullets from flying in and and protecting her child. And she said there's still a lot of sadness and and bitterness about the fact that you know they they watched all these people being killed in front of them and then they weren't allowed to talk about it for years. So I think the older generation, particularly in Guangzhou itself, still has very painful memories of that time. I spoke to this one young guy. He said, you know, just just hearing about it makes me cry because it's such a sad thing to have happened. And his girlfriend said, it's, it's, extremely, it's an extremely heartbreaking thing and something that should never be forgotten. So it has a very strong legacy, even among younger people. And is there still that partisan divide about what happened? So actually, there has been an emerging centrist consensus about the uprising as a foundational moment, because even a lot of people who are on the right in South Korea now did get involved in the pro-democracy movement throughout the 80s. This year, the main conservative opposition party actually told its members that spreading those theories about Guangzhou being a riot or inspired by North Korean agents would get them expelled. And senior opposition politicians also went to Guangzhou on May 18th to commemorate the uprising, which is not something that's always happened. And, and what about the left? How, how is the, the, the left side of South Korean politics responding to this, this seeming capitulation on this idea? The South Korean left have always seen the Guangzhou uprising as an important milestone in the road to democracy. Moon Jae-in, the the current president, participated in the pro-democracy movement himself. And in his speech at the memorial this year, he was very explicit that the government really cared about finding out what exactly happened at the time. 
남겨진 진실을 낱낱이 밝힐 수 있도록 지원을 아끼지 않겠습니다. They've launched a new fact-finding committee. There, there's maybe an argument to be made that the current ruling party is going slightly overboard and wanting to honor the spirit of this movement and sort of making it a kind of sacred cow in terms of historical memorializing. So they want to entrench the spirit of the Guangzhou uprising in the constitution. Nobody's exactly sure what that means. And there's also a proposal for a law to criminalize those views about it being a riot or being inspired by North Korean influence, which would serve to shut down historical debate and sort of make discussion about it less open. And sort of irrespective of these these, these shifts of, of how it's it's viewed ideologically, this, this anniversary will continue to be an important one. Yeah, I think it looks like over time it's going to become less of a partisan issue and there's going to be this emerging consensus about how it's just an important founding moment of South Korean democracy. And there was one moment of the commemoration this year where they all got together and sang this song called The March for the Beloved, which became this anthem of the democracy movement in the years after Gwangju. And the leader of the Conservative Opposition Party was noted to have sung along extremely loudly to the song, which earned him a lot of brownie points with people more on the left. So I think you can see that there's an emerging common idea or this common memory of this event is starting to emerge in South Korean society. Lena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. was the last time in 2011 that astronauts launched into space from American soil, until today. A rocket and capsule built by Elon Musk's firm SpaceX is scheduled to lift off this afternoon from Florida's Kennedy Space Center. Yesterday, at a press conference, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said the agency was transforming spaceflight. The commercial crew program is in fact about commercializing low Earth orbit. We've got resupply, now we're going to have crew, soon we're going to have commercial space stations. It will be the first time the private sector has put astronauts into orbit and could signal the start of a new kind of space race. So if everything goes to plan, a pair of NASA astronauts named Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken will go to the International Space Station and they'll stay there for between one or four months before they come back to Earth. And that's, you know, fairly ho-hum. Astronaut launches go to the space station all the time. What's different about this one is how they're getting there. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. So ever since 2011, America's had to rent spaces on Russian rockets. So if this launch works, it'll be the first time in nine years that uh, America can use a domestically developed spacecraft to get its astronauts into orbit. This is a unique moment where all of America can take a, a moment and look at our country do something stunning again. And that is launch American astronauts on American rockets from American soil. Uh, and also, maybe even more significantly, it will be the first time they use a spacecraft that's been developed and run by a private company. And so does that bring American capabilities back to where they were before the, the space shuttle was retired? I think in, in one important way it does, which is these rockets and this spaceship are American-made. So, you know, this is the country that won the space race. And I think that having to rely on Russia, which has done a good job, but I think that sort of rankles a bit. 
And the other advantage that Dragon has is it's just a bigger ship than the Russian one, the Soyuz. It can carry as many as seven astronauts, whereas Soyuz can launch just three. And in fact, you know, NASA, which has been renting seats from the Russians, has kind of turned things around a bit and said, well, if Russian astronauts want to launch on our Dragon flights, on our so-called commercial crew flights, then they'd be welcome to. And then the final difference from the shuttle days, and maybe the most dramatic one, is just cost. The space shuttle was incredibly expensive, $27 billion in in today's money just to develop the orbiter, not even including the rockets or anything like that. And spacecraft accounting is a bit of a black art, but the best guess for the cost of developing Dragon has been about $1.7 billion. So NASA's getting an awful lot more bang for its buck than it ever really has before. And so in that sense, that this launch is, uh, is, is a sign that, that space travel, at least the, the American version of space travel, is, is going to be largely private from, from here on out, do you think? This is one view, and this is a view that some people within NASA are, are sort of pushing. So the genesis of this goes back over a decade and a half when NASA decided it was going to change the way it sort of bought spaceships. And so assuming that this flight goes according to plan, SpaceX's contracts say they have to provide at least six more flights to the station for NASA, and you can probably expect more after that. Um, And they aren't the only company doing this, of course. So Boeing, you know, a venerable aerospace giant, has bid on the contract in a similar way. It's got its own spaceship called Starliner. They're a little bit behind. They had a test in December that went sort of quite badly wrong, which has put their whole program back. So with this as a kind of demonstration of the, of the privatization of space, how, how do you think it goes from here? Well, I mean, space has always been privatized to an extent because we've always had private companies building these spaceships. It's not like, you know, NASA actually does the welding itself. What's changed, I guess, is the way they've gone about doing it. So it used to be a very cozy industry where, you, you know, you said you wanted a spaceship. You gave a contract to some big aerospace giant and said, hey, just tell me how much it costs and I'll tack on a profit margin for you. What's different, I think, is that NASA is now willing to go to these kind of scrappy, small startups of which you know, SpaceX used to be one. And it's giving them fixed price contracts instead and saying, you know, I want a spacecraft and it can't cost more than X. So the next sort of big goal in America's space missions is to go back to the moon, allegedly in 2024, though I'm sure that date will slip. And that's all been handled in the old way with the result that, you know, the rocket, which is called the Space Launch System, huge rocket, already cost about $18 billion. The spaceship itself, which is called Orion, costs more than $25 billion. But increasingly, I think if you look now, there are more and more components of a mission like that that already exist in the private sector. So SpaceX has the Dragon. It's working on a sort of massive rocket that will be the size of the SLS and much, much cheaper. I mean, Elon Musk, its boss, has said, He wants to get down to sort of $2 million a launch, which is almost unbelievably cheap. And NASA's already contracting with SpaceX and a couple of other companies, including Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, to build lunar landers. We are proving out a business model, a public-private partnership business model that ultimately will enable us to go to the moon, this time sustainably. In other words, we're going to go to the moon to stay. So we might get into a situation where all the hardware is there, to run a sort of private sector moon mission. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow.
Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.